Welcome to The 12th Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 181 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with more than 90,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street, downtown Cincinnati, and online at mercantilelibrary.com. And we always welcome new members and guests. Today, we will be talking about Station Eleven. It is the least apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic book ever, and we loved it here at the library. The setting, is 20, the setting is 20 years after a flu that literally kills nearly everybody. Some time later, people realize that survival is not enough. That's what the book is about. Joining us today in the lecture hall on the 12th story of the Mercantile Library building are Abby Moran, Mercantile board member, and Brendan Cull, also a board member and a member of the Cincinnati USA Regional Chamber. Today, we will be discussing Station Eleven, and the best of all, we will be joined by the author, Emily St. John Mandel, who will be coming to the library on September 15th. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, from the beginning, even, even when things were dark, I viewed this book, which I loved, as a very hopeful book. Did you see it as a book of hope? I did, ultimately. And part of that, I have to say, has to do with the, uh, some of the choices that I made around the timeline of the book. So it seems to me that most of the post-apocalyptic fiction that I've read and most of the post-apocalyptic films that I've seen dwell in that immediate aftermath of mayhem and chaos and horror immediately following the complete societal breakdown. And as I was thinking about what this book would be and what the world of the book might look like, it seemed to me that it just wasn't really plausible that that mayhem and chaos would last forever, at least not absolutely everywhere on Earth, just because mayhem isn't really the most sustainable way of life over the long haul. You know, over <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, so it seemed to me that by the time we got to about 15 or 20 years after a collapse of this nature, that probably we would have chilled out a little bit. Um, you know, I think that most people really do just want to live more or less peacefully um, with some modicum of physical safety. So it was just more interesting to me to write about what comes after that mayhem and chaos. You know, what's the new world and the new culture that begins to emerge 15 or 20 years down the line? And what I realized after the fact is that that did lend it an air of hopefulness, which I'm not sure I was really thinking of consciously at the outset. You know, that um, I guess just by nature of the book being set after the end of the world, but not being a horror novel, that there is a kind of built-in hope there. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. You know, it, it's, we, you touched on this post-apocalyptic um, nature of your book and how you waited a little bit longer, but bigger picture, why, why there's a rash of movies and TV shows and books and everything about kind of this post-apocalyptic world right now. Do, do you have any idea why you think that's a trend? Why are we seeing so much of that? I'm not completely certain. I've heard some really interesting theories. Um, I did a fairly extensive tour for this book, and by fairly extensive, I mean 127 events in seven Whoa. countries. Wow. Yeah, epic. Um, and one of the most interesting parts of that experience was talking to readers all around the world and getting their theories on why there are so many, so many of these books these days. Um, 
I heard a few that were really interesting. One in particular, which I kind of wrote off at the time but seems more relevant now, was someone suggested to me that perhaps we're drawn to these stories because of economic inequality. Mm. That maybe in this world that does seem as though it's an unlevel playing field, shall we say, that maybe we just secretly long to blow it all up and start over again. Oh, my. And I have to say, I didn't really take that very seriously at the time, but we find ourselves in a political moment where... Now, whatever your opinion is of Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump, they are undeniably mainstream candidates who really ran on a platform of blowing up a system and trying something different. And then, of course, we have Brexit in the UK. So I've, I've been thinking about that lately, that maybe there's more to that than I initially thought. I heard a really beautiful theory from a bookseller in the UK about why we like these books. Her idea was that we're drawn to fiction set in the future because there are no more frontiers. Uh. That, you know, there are no more places where you can really just go and stake a claim, um, you know, the way my great-grandparents did in California. Mm-hmm. And that maybe, that maybe that lack of uncharted territory has left us with a kind of restlessness that we channel into fiction set in the future. So I liked that idea. Uh, the theory that I hear the most often... I think it's flawed for reasons I'll get into in a minute, but it is kind of interesting. What I hear the most often is this idea that we're drawn to fiction, um, that we're drawn to post-apocalyptic fiction as a reflection of the anxiety that we feel in these somewhat fraught times in which we live, this age of political instability, climate change, etc. And the, the trouble with that theory, though, is that as far as I can tell, we always think the world's ending. You know, whether there's something <laughs> obviously calamitous going on or not. Um, and then the trouble with that bookseller in the UK's theory is that the world's been mapped for a very long time. You know, there haven't really been any frontiers for a while. Um, the thing with the economic inequality theory is there has always been some degree of economic inequality. So if you look more in terms of what's changed in our culture in the last decade or so, what I find myself wondering is whether we're drawn to these books, at least in part because of a certain ambivalence that we feel about the technology that surrounds us. Uh, the technology is incredible. You know, it's wonderful that you can talk to somebody on a handheld device that's really a supercomputer that fits in your pocket, or you can cross the Atlantic Ocean in six hours. But we have entered a time where we're very much tethered to our devices and to some extent addicted to our technology. And I sometimes wonder if it isn't as simple as that, if we don't kind of wish for a world where more conversations are face-to-face or where it was possible to leave work at the end of the day and work wouldn't be emailing you and those emails showing up in your pocket. So, yeah, I I have no firm conclusion, but that's what I've been thinking about lately. Say what you want about the post-apocalypse. There is a purity to it. You know, everyone is what they are and the technology is gone. Yeah, there's a simplicity to it, isn't there? Yeah. Do you think do you think that the rise of the internet has made our civilization more vulnerable? Perhaps to the extent that we don't have as much knowledge as we used to. Um, it seems to me that it seems to me we used to know more before we could look everything up. I don't know. Maybe that's right. Maybe I'm looking at the past through rose-tinted glasses, but I used to know all my friends' phone numbers. I don't know about you guys. Right. <laughs> right. Who, who does yeah, you know, you just pull up that name. Um, you take it for granted that if you need knowledge, it's there on your smartphone. Um, well, and then just basic skills. I mean, you know, that, that was one thing I was really obsessed with when reading your book was, you know, if I survived, would I be able to find water? Would I be able to 
find the food I needed. And it really did make me, I, I mean, I was so captured by the world of your book. It really did make me look at my immediate environment so differently. Like, I was really thinking, like, how would I, if there was a pathogen, how would I avoid it? And how would, <laughs> how would I survive? And it made me wash my hands more and made me purchase, like, some, some more bottled water and supplies for my house. But, uh-huh. you know, I wondered, I wondered, did you, you know, you obviously spent much more time writing this book than I did reading it. Did it alter your behavior and the way you looked at the world? Uh, not really. I think it was already there. Okay. <laughs> No, but you know, one of the things about living in New York City is there's such a um, a public service drive at all times for disaster preparedness. So we are encouraged as citizens to have bottled water and basic canned goods in the house. So I've been doing that for a few years. Um, actually, I guess ever since Hurricane Katrina, uh-huh. that was happening in New Orleans. So it's like, you know what, it might be nice just for my peace of mind to have right. a few bottles of water and some canned goods. So, yeah, I mean, my husband and I, we have very basic things, um, some bottled water, canned goods, and a first aid kit. But I feel like preparedness is such a slippery slope. You know, one of the, uh, one of the things that I did with this book in terms of research was I was trying to think about what it would mean to live off the grid. Mm. Because, you know, as you alluded to, that does require a whole set of skills that I just absolutely do not have. <laughs> and um, so I thought, well, who does live off the grid? Um, survivalists. So I spent some time reading survivalist message forums on the internet, which was kind of unsettling. And what really struck me was the way it's possible to live in an imaginary future, to kind of spend your life there. That, you know, we talk about the value of living in the present moment, Mm -hmm. and those people absolutely do not. So on the one hand, you know, they're good friends to have if the world ends. Right. (laughs) On the other hand, it's a pretty dark life. As long as you can find their phone number. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you find a phone number, you'd be okay. Um, yeah, so I try not to get too crazy with thinking about what ifs, but but yeah, I am a big fan of Purell, I have to say. <laughs> I, I, think, I think we're learning why so many people are writing about the post-apocalypse. It's clearly a topic of, <laughs> of some interest. I have an actual book question. Um, sure. Just before the flu, Miranda looks in the mirror in a hotel room and says, I regret nothing. And I thought it was this really powerful scene, but I also didn't believe her. Did you believe her? That's interesting. I, I was thinking about this. I think I believe her at that point in the book, but I don't believe her in an earlier point in the book where Arthur has a memory of seeing Miranda standing in front of a mirror um, really quite earlier in her life when they're still married, saying, I regret nothing. And that's just after a disastrous party and her life isn't going very well. So I saw her as trying to convince herself of that at some points in her life, but then at other points in her life, maybe that mantra really Mm -hmm. ringing true to her. So I felt like by the end of her life, when she had this job that she loved and really was enjoying her life, that by that point she got into a place of no regrets, but that probably earlier in her life it was a little bit more aspirational. Right. I thought you had such a such a gift for those before the flu scenes too. Like that dinner party was so excruciating when she takes the dog out and she's just yeah. I mean, she's reading the subtext of the scene. Is isn't isn't Arthur at that point embarking on an infidelity with one of the other um one of the other later wives? 
<laughs> and I just, I, I mean, you just had such a deft touch, and that's one of the things I liked about this, post, po, you know, sort of post-apocalyptic book because it, ha it contains so many of those great scenes from before the flu too. And you, but you read them so differently with the awareness that it's all coming to an end. And so I, I was wondering just about the structure of how you, you know, how you put the novel together because you did seem to like counterbalance the grimness of the flu and and its aftermath by going back backwards and forwards in time. And I think you kind of alluded to the fact that like you didn't dwell on that like immediate, the immediate aftermath so much. Um, so to me as a reader, it just seemed that you were sensitive to, to how hard that is to read and yeah. that you would apply just enough pressure and then back off. And um, I just wondered how you thought about the structure and did you write it all chronologically and then rearrange it or did you, how, how did you how did how did you structure your writing of the novel? Uh, non chronologically, I jumped wildly all over the okay. place. Um, yeah, the uh, I really enjoy writing novels with this nonlinear structure. I've done it with all four books, and it seems to me that it's an interesting way to tell a story, um, yeah. really for character development. You know, it's it's kind of interesting to me to write a chapter from the perspective of character A. And then maybe the next chapter is from the perspective of character B, but looking at character A, maybe at a different point in their lives in a completely different place. So you get a much more well-rounded sense of who those people are. And then also, with this novel, it seemed to me there was some advantage um, to using a nonlinear structure in that, you know, as you alluded to, you could kind of touch lightly on different points in time. I felt that it was good for contrast. That you know, I could have a chapter. I, I could have a chapter where characters talk about how incredible it was that we used to have cell phones, or I could just drop in a chapter with cell phones. You know, right after a post-apocalyptic section. So for that contrast, it seemed to me that that it was a good structure for this particular story. Um, and going back to the dinner party for a second, that was such a fun scene to write because. <laughs> um, some of that dialogue came from an actual horrendous dinner party. That <laughs> I wondered. That seems yeah, so yeah. real. This dinner party, which uh, had the most pretentious people I've ever met in my life. <laughs> the guy sitting next to me said, I just came back from the Czech Republic, you know, from Praha. Oh, God. It, it, which is a dialogue in the book. In real life, I said, huh, that sounds interesting. Um, my sort of ideal, you know, the killer line that you think of in the middle of the night was that. <laughs> What actually happens in the book, where the guy sitting next to him says, "Yeah, you know, when you're speaking English, I think you can actually call it Prague." So, yeah, that was uh, that was extremely satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> the power of the pen. Exactly. Exactly. So, along those same lines, the scenes that were most captivating for me, someone who had spent ten years in corporate America, were the airport scenes, and the scenes about the. Um, the, the interviews that were done by the uh, the consultant to Clark. Clark yeah the consult yeah. The, the the consultant that became totally meaningless afterwards so were they based on your own experiences in airports and especially after your 127 event tour uh, <laughs> were you constantly paranoid you were going to get stuck in an airport those were based on my experiences uh, in corporate America I was an executive assistant for a while to an executive coach and. I type really freakishly quickly, so I would go along to these uh, these interviews. There was the 360 process that I yes. described in the book. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm getting Identify shivers. Identify an executive in need of improvement, <laughs> and then interview everybody around them, and then compile reports. And it was really interesting work, because it was narrative. You were sort of developing a story about this person. 
Uh, but, oh, my God, some of the corporate language would drive me insane. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, you do literally hear about drilling down to a higher level. Ah, <laughs> we're all shivering. <laughs> yeah, I would just, uh, I was collecting them at one point. I, um, I just thought they were kind of incredible. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and, you know, you don't send an email, you shoot off an email. Right, um, right, right. right. You need a much more shift. fun process and actually happens by clicking the send button. But anyways, it's a whole other digression. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's great. I was struck um, that, you know, 20 years after the flu, uh, the pieces of art that are really important are, you know, classical music, Shakespeare, and then this obscure piece of art, you know, Dr. Eleven. Uh, was, that, was, was that a statement on popular art and culture by you? of the randomness of what remains. Oh. That we like to think that following an event of this nature, um, that what would remain would be the very highest or most exalted things about our culture, or the things that we think of as such. Um, the classical music, particular pieces of jazz, um, theater, Shakespeare. But what if it's also a self-published comic book? You know, I mean, why not? Um, I was thinking about that, even in terms of Shakespeare's life that there, and his work, that there were some lost plays. Um, there's a loved labor lost, but scholars think that there was also once a loved labor found. You know, so, and, and you know, why did that play not survive when Romeo and Juliet did? So there is a certain randomness about it. It was interesting to me to think of, of what survives in those terms. That makes me think of that story. Um, oh, Hadley Hemingway left some of Hemingway's papers on the train. Do you remember that from The Paris Wife? Did you ever read that book? It's a dramatization of, of Hemingway's first marriage, and she leaves behind some of his papers accidentally. I think I read a biography of his. This sounds horribly familiar. What happened to oh, the papers? Oh, God. I mean, she just, they were already, their relationship was so under strain, and she was trying to help him by bringing his papers to him so he could work on them. And she, I think she left them on a train. And he was oh, just God. enraged, as you would be, you know? Um, oh, gosh, so painful. Uh, this, yeah, that's horrifying. So that could have been the lost Hemingway novel. Right, exactly. Like, what, what, what was in there? And, and uh, just such a, such a random, such a human random act. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I was wondering about the setting. Um, I grew up in a little tiny town with a lot of survivalists, actually, in northern Indiana, um, near Lake Michigan. Um, and I've spent a lot of time along, along Lake Michigan. I was kind of obsessed with um, trying to divine um, which city Severn City was, which, you know, is it one that I've spent time in. And so I Googled it, and I found that I was, I was really not alone. A lot of people had been Googling <laughs> Severn City <laughs> to find out exactly where it is. Um, and, and I was thinking about trying to survive along that western shore, um, that western shore of Michigan, along the, along the banks of Lake Michigan. You know, in the summer, this time of year, it would be, it would be a fantastic place to be. Um, there's just abundant produce and, and great weather and, and plenty of rain. But in the winter, it could be really, really harsh. And I think, you know, you'd need a team of people or really, you know, excellent planning and excellent skills on, as an individual to survive. So I was wondering how you chose that setting, um, if, you've, if you had already spent a lot of time in that area and that, that's how you decided on it or um, kind of what your, what your thought process was with that. Um, I chose the setting largely because I just really liked the area. I was, um, 
I was sent to Traverse City and Petoskey on tour for my second novel, The Singer's Gun. So this would have been back in spring of 2010, I guess. And it was one of those areas where I just never really heard very much about it. Um, I guess, you know, it's not a huge population up there. And people around where I live in New York, you know, they take their summer vacations on Long Island or elsewhere. Um, so I, I didn't know that there was this beautiful stretch of lakeshore up there. Mm-hmm. So I found myself up there, and I just thought it was beautiful. I was... Um, I liked it so much. You know, the towns are really interesting. The bookstores are great. So I arranged to have myself sent back on every successive tour. Oh, great. Um, yeah, so I went back on two or three book tours after that. And so I've been thinking for a while about setting something there just because I liked the place. Um, and then when I was thinking about what the symphony's territory should be in this book, it seemed to me that it made sense for a number of reasons. You know, one of them was just that well, it is freezing up there, and winters would be really hard. It does have easy access to fresh water, which is, of course, a consideration in a post-apocalyptic novel. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a pretty wide range of food sources, you know, right. hunting, berries, etc. Um, I like the idea of the symphony's territory having kind of a firm boundary, so the lake shore made sense to me. And then for plot reasons, I wanted it to be a place to which a character could reasonably have walked from Toronto. So it's a little bit of a hike, but it's doable. Uh, and then, yeah, Severn City, it, it's not based on anywhere. I would wanted to set some of the action of the book in an airport. And I wanted that to be a larger airport than actually exists in the region. So I just made up an airport. And then if you have a made-up airport, you need a made-up city to go with it. <laughs> right, right, absolutely. Yeah, I'm not even clear where, where Severn City is on the map, to be honest. Right. There, uh, yeah, I, I can't think of a, a big enough population center that exists of where Severn City would be, right. so kudos to yeah, you for just... And that's a great thing about fiction. If the population yeah. <laughs> center's not there, you just make it up. Yeah. <laughs> Don't accept the map. Make your own map. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I thought you did a great job with it, with that, yeah. with that setting. It just made me want to go walk along, walk along the beach and harvest berries. <laughs> it, it seemed there were... Um... There were two types of people afterwards. In, well, there are a lot of different types, but some people clinging to the past and some people just moving on from it and saying, we're here now, let's move forward. Which, which grouping do you think you would find yourself in? I would try to... I like to think that I would try to move forward. I guess, yeah, that's um, it's one of those things where, you know, of course, you look at that and you think, well... My ideal self would do X, but I'm not sure if my actual self would do X or Y. Um, I guess I would actually try to find some balance because I do like the idea of holding on to artifacts and memories. Um, you know, I certainly have a lot of little random mementos from my life and from my grandparents' lives. But then on the other hand, you do have to keep on living in the world, even if the world has changed completely. So. I suppose for me it would be a matter of trying to strike some kind of balance between the two. I have one last book one, and then we'll move on to our, you know, moving forward. Um, the, the relationship between Clark and Arthur was really complicated, and they felt like brothers, and they felt like, like they were in a loving relationship, and it felt like they hated each other. Uh-huh. How would you characterize the relationship between these two men? it just now when you said they were like brothers it's that when they first meet each other when they're 17 18 years old they really adore each other it's one of those 
it's one of those platonic friendships that's almost like a romance where you're just delighted by the other person. But then by the time they hit their late 40s, early 50s, around the time of the collapse, around the time of Arthur's death, there's kind of, um, it's like they don't even really enjoy each other's company very much anymore, but they're like family. They each have so much of each other's past and so many shared memories. And it's kind of interesting how that can happen with friendships. Mm -hmm. You know, there could be somebody who you know for all of your life. And in the end, it is kind of a familial relationship in the sense that you wouldn't necessarily choose to hang out with your family members if you weren't related. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> there's such a wealth of shared memory. You have such a shared past that there's a, that, yeah, that it could be hard to let go, even if it doesn't make sense. So, yeah, I thought it has been a very complicated relationship that had definitely changed um, by the end of their lives. All right, so... If you had to pick five people to form a band of post-apocalyptic survivors, who would you choose? <laughs> you know, it would have to be it would have to be five people whose company I could stand because really, yes. it's a very tight knit group. If you're moving through the post-apocalyptic landscape together, you know, I have to think about it. I um, I guess I would choose my husband, my best friend, and I have to think of a few other people. <laughs> Tough call, wouldn't it? Are they handy? You have to, be, you know, you have to run these people right. through a very hard prism. And do you have their phone numbers? <laughs> yes, exactly. Main question. <laughs> well, we um, many of us learned about your uh, novel for the first time when Ann Patrick came to the Mercantile Library two years ago to deliver um, a lecture to 500 people in our big, our big annual Niehoff lecture, and. Um, Ann Patchett offered a very hearty endorsement, uh, a very hearty endorsement of your book and encouraged us to all go out and get it. And many, many of us did. And the, our library membership has really, really enjoyed your novel. We um, have had uh, a previous podcast about this book and then also a very well attended um, book discussion here at the library. And uh, we're very excited that you're coming um, later this year to speak to us. Um, in the spirit of Ann Patchett turning us on to good, good books, do you have anything that you think we should all run out and read? I do, and this is slightly obnoxious of me because it hasn't been published yet. I think it's coming out um, next spring. But I just read an incredible debut novel. The author's name is M.L. Rio. That's R-I-O. The book is called If We Were Villains. And... If you were a fan of the secret history, it's, it's not dissimilar in terms of setup. It's about, it's about a very tight-knit group of Shakespearean actors in a, um, in a conservatory in New England. And it's just, it's so beautifully written. She has a master's in Shakespeare studies, so she really knows what she's talking about. She goes in really deep into some of the plays. And it, it's, um, it, it's one of those literary page-turners, which is personally my favorite kind of book. It, it, it's so beautifully written, and it's absolutely gripping. You really can't put it down. So that's a book that I think I'm going to be recommending to everybody for about the next year. I just, um, it just really impressed me. And it's coming out in um, spring 2017? I believe so, yeah. I don't know the exact publication date, but sometime in the next six months or so. Well, we'll try not to hold that against you, that you're you. <laughs> tempting us right. with something that's not... It's kind of obnoxious to be like, oh, I <laughs> 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 Well, I would certainly place 
Station Eleven in um, the literary page turner category, and we all just thank you for creating this world and and for giving us this really satisfying read. Um, it, it really it feels like a gift. So thank you, and we look forward to meeting you in person. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the kind words, and um, appreciate you reading it. And I'm looking forward to coming out there. Great. Well, thank we'll you see so you soon. Much. See you then. Bye. All right. Sounds good. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you for joining us today on The Twelfth Story. We encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. We're available in the iTunes Store and on Sound, SoundCloud. And if you like listening, tell your friends or tweet to us at Mercantile Lib. That's Mercantile L-I-B. My name is John Faraday. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guests, Abby and Brendan. The Twelfth Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at www.mercantilelibrary.com, where you can also buy tickets to see Emily here in September. And you can learn about the library and our upcoming events. Have a great week.